This is the PowerShell Podcast, the podcast for PowerShell and the PowerShell community. You might just learn something. I think you'll enjoy it. The PowerShell Podcast is a PDQ production, making device management simple, secure, and pretty damn quick. And now, here's your hosts, Jordan Hammond and Andrew Plaw. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to PowerShell Podcast. I'm Megastar Jordan, the million-dollar smile built for radio. Here with co-host, legend, superhero, Andrew Plaw. This is what I'm talking about, man. The, the good vibes are back. Yeah, I'm bringing positivity back. It's time. Thank you. All right. So, Andrew, you got a Mac, I think, today. Yesterday, I got Yesterday. a MacBook. Yep, it a was MacBook. for work. I got a new MacBook. My old one was dying. Uh, not my old one. My old PC, Lenovo, was kind of dying on me. Battery was dead. Gave me some blue screens. Not a good look, but I wanted to get on the Mac bandwagon. I've seen a lot of PowerShell people, developers using Macs, and uh, I know PowerShell's cross-platform, so I wanted to push the limits. I've never ran it on an Apple device before, but now I have. See, if I did it, I know I just instantly use Parallels and switch over to mm. Windows, but that's just who I am. I don't like change. See, I haven't done any VM stuff yet, but I tell you what. I'm pretty fast. I know a bunch of hotkeys. I'm a power user, you would say, in Windows. And I know how to navigate around really quick. It is not, like, it's not intuitive for me to switch control and command. And sometimes it's like Alt-Tab still works. Other times I have to Control-Tab. I have to, like, relearn my whole workflow. Uh, So if you're running PowerShell on Mac, maybe a former Windows user, please help. Give me some suggestions. Send me some resources. PowerShell the guy on a video, they put me on a Mac and I couldn't scroll down, so I'm not gonna I'm not gonna judge. <laughs> yeah. It's it's fun though. I really like the workflow. It's very beautiful, you could say. But All right. And then you just did your your lunch and learn. We just did a lunch Irish and learn. Yeah. Yeah, we, we, we finished talked, it about an hour ago. Yeah, we talked about that a little bit with Fred. Did it go as good as you're hoping? Oh, it was it was amazing. There were some people there who, actually several people who have been using PowerShell, but have never created a profile before or customized it at all. And it was fun to take them through that, to go through mine, to obviously cover PS Readline a little bit and some customizations for it. So thank you to everyone who came out. Um, we look forward to doing some more of those lunch and learns in the future. I like that format of like 30 minutes during the day, introducing a topic, kind of um, casual where questions can be asked. It's more of a conversation than just like, uh, an I know everything presentation, but yeah, right. good vibes. Last point. This is a big one. Longtime listener, PowerShell Young Team. Yes, Th- their blog is back up and running, and they just put out a heck of a blog article using what, key pass building profiles, which ties in perfectly to your your webcast there and mm-hmm. uh, or your lunch and learn, as as well as uh, OpenAI, I believe. Yeah, they're using um, key pass to get their OpenAI API key to use the PowerShell AI module. And initially, I, in preparation for that lunch and learn we just talked about, I posted a thread on Twitter asking, what are people doing to their profiles? You got some tips? Like, what, what do we have out here? Bonus points if you send me some code. And I got a bunch of responses. And I realized that our friend PowerShell Young Team started blogging and had an epic one. So we got to highlight it. Shout out to PowerShell Young Team, friend of the podcast, longtime supporter, especially in our early days, you know, when, when we weren't getting many likes or listens. Um, this person was always supporting us. So really appreciate that. Links to those things will be in the show notes. All right. It's time to introduce our guest. I'm very excited about this. Oh, we have a guest today. Uh, is it, it a great is. guest? 
It is a great guy. It's not every day that I get to talk to a person that was critical to building the foundation of my career. I, I don't know if my career was the sole basis, but to everyone, welcome Jim Truer. Hey, I'm I'm sorry. I'm, I was about this earlier. I've just been giddy to talk to you for some time just because PowerShell has been such a huge part of my life and you've been there. You, I think you said you're the first product manager for the PowerShell team? The first program manager, the program on, manager on, the, yeah. on, the, on the team, yeah, when uh, when the project kind of started getting off the ground. So we were talking a little bit before we went live, and um, I wanted to get a little bit about your background. I was doing some research. I saw on LinkedIn you have a master's in musicology. Um, what's your background, and how did you find yourself in IT, and, and what role, or like what did you learn from music? And yeah, just kind of curious about hearing your background. Sure. Before we start, though, I heard earlier, I heard you talking earlier about that you're on a Mac. Mm -hmm. and ever since PowerShell went to uh, cross-platform, I have been on a Mac since the beginning of time. I, that's my daily driver. I hardly ever use Windows, so if you have any questions about that, go ahead, hit me up. I've written a whole bunch of stuff for the Mac specifically. So. Oh, nice. I definitely will. Very cool. Yeah. Uh, so... So my background uh, basically started out, uh, I was going to, well, I was a music teacher. Uh, so I have degrees in music. I have a teaching, had a teaching, uh, teaching credential. This is way back in the early 80s. And, uh, and I was a professional musician in Los Angeles. I did uh, radio, television. I did a movie. It was, uh, I did a, I was back up, uh, did an album, was on a, album of Michael Jackson, um, Dangerous. Uh, I did some backup vocals on that. Um, oh. And and I was a, a singer for hire in L.A. And uh, along the, along the, in one of the things, one of the jobs I got, I was talking to another guy that was uh, in, a, in a choir that I was doing some work for. And, and we started talking about, about, Computers, because I had used computers uh, as a as a as a user. I used one to write my master's thesis. I used one to um, uh, uh, to do all my schoolwork and my keep my grades all sorted and all the rest of it. So there were tools available that. Uh, and he, he, we had this conversation about that. Well, he used to be a teacher too. He used to teach uh, German medieval literature, and uh, and I. We just got talking, and it sounded like he was doing interesting stuff. And he said, well, would you like to go, and would you like to talk to us about uh, coming in and doing some work for us? Because you're computer literate enough, and and I've got a really simple job. Um, and the first question you ask uh, as a working musician is, what does it pay? Uh, and and it was essentially a, just a halftime job was about as, was more than what I was making as a teacher. So I said, well, let's see if I can figure out how to make this stuff all work. And, and the job itself, the job literally was, was quality assurance on, on duplicated disks. So you'd spend, I'd spend a few hours a day going, taking a disk and sticking in a drive, running a program, seeing whether or not it was a good disk. And if it wasn't, then I would track it. And if it was, then it was all good and things got, and uh, uh, I had uh, some, I had the opportunity to do more. They gave me some opportunities. Uh, this is 87 or so. They gave me some opportunities to kind of expand in the role. And, and so I uh, started working uh, in the technical support group 
was hired full time and I was thinking, this is great. I could still actually work as a professional musician and I did uh, and do a full time day job, uh, which is not unsurprising as a working musician. You often will have a day job. My day job was just in computers. So I continued to kind of learn about computers from a programming perspective and then uh, and then more and more, you know, kind of working on my own, learning about how to program and learning how computers really worked under the covers and, and all the rest of it, building my own. And, and, um, and then they, I got, uh, this was a little company called uh, Interactive uh, Systems in Santa Monica. And, uh, and then I got an opportunity to start managing uh, an engineering group. I moved into a development role and then got some management experience. And, and then I went to my work in my first startup uh, company called uh, uh, Univell, which was a partnership of Novell and Unix Systems Lab. And I went to work uh, helping customers get to the platform, taking their code and getting it compiled and all the rest of it. And I did that for uh, that. That startup was uh, eventually acquired completely by Novell. And I went off and did some, uh, and I really wasn't interested in working for Novell at the time. I wanted to kind of stay in the Unix environment. And I went to work as a consultant for the MIPS group. Uh, so Silicon Graphics, Pyramid, Siemens Nixdorf, those guys. And we were, we were doing a bunch of uh, application binary compatibility. So you can write one app and run it on seven different MIPS program platforms. And that was pretty cool. Wrote a bunch of stuff, uh, did a bunch of uh, more learning, which was great. Um, and uh, after that, I got uh, a, another job in a new startup called, uh, uh, the company was called Software Systems. We made a product called, at the time, it was called OpenNT. And uh, it turned into Interix, the chain, name changed. And, and I, did more, I did more working with customers, getting their, their code to this platform. Because it, uh, it was essentially a Unix environment running on Windows. It was complete Unix environment. So you had all you'd want on a Unix environment, signals and case sensitivity in the file system. And it was all on NT. Uh, and it all worked great. And Microsoft acquired the technology. You can acquired that that from the software, and that's how I got to Microsoft. Wow. So it sounds like for a lot of this, you have a passion for learning because every everything is, is I, I dabbled in this, but I was happy to learn more because it feels like every step you talk about a whole new avenue that you got to learn from, which I think is pretty cool. Yeah, I, I really do. I think uh, I try to learn stuff all the time. I think it's really, I think it's, I think it's kind of the way you improve as a person is you just know, you learn more uh, in, in new experiences that teach you something. And, and how can I use what I've learned in the past to uh, act on these new new problems. And, and that's really interesting. That's always been interesting to me. And how has a background in music affected your perspective in tech? Like, has it been helpful to you? Do you rely on those experiences? Are there any parallels you can draw? Yeah, well, absolutely. In, in, as a performer, 
and and going off and trying to get jobs all the time, you are used to people saying no. Uh, and but that doesn't make you that doesn't make you stop. You keep going, right? So uh, it, I had lots of lots of uh, hurdles on throughout this entire career because everything that I was doing was always new. I didn't know anything about anything. So as I was moving in, in as improving my skills as a as an engineer. It was always, how do I learn something new? So I'm really, really, I enjoy that. And, and, I've, and I've been pretty good at it over the years. And I believe nowadays you are a conductor for the Kirkland Symphony, is it? Kirkland Civic Orchestra, that's right. right. Um, the Kirkland Civic Orchestra was at its beginning of its life, the Microsoft Orchestra, which was a, uh, an uh, uh, orchestra made up of mostly... Um, Microsoft employees, Microsoft spouses, or uh, the way I kind of described it, at, at, right as we were uh, kind of growing into the Kirkland Civic Orchestra, is that people that worked at Microsoft, people that lived with people that worked at Microsoft, people that knew people that worked at Microsoft, or people that knew about Microsoft. So it was it was a it was a group of musicians, uh, community orchestra built up at its core at the beginning. When it started, and that was not—I didn't start it. It, it was—it uh, was ongoing when when I was uh, when I was able to start conducting it. I was asked by one of the that the current conductor couldn't make a concert, and they asked me to to come in and and uh, um, conduct a concert. And then uh, he had to go. I think he left Microsoft, and and I was still there. So they they kind of wanted me to keep conducting. So I did. Awesome. And I will, in the show notes, include a link, uh, a couple links, actually. One of them is the Halo theme with the Microsoft Orchestra. Very nostalgic for me. I grew up on Halo and I listened to it this morning and oh my gosh, in about four minutes and 45 seconds, the drums come in and oh my gosh, it's awesome. You got to listen to it. That was pretty fun. Uh, we, we, did, uh, we did a recording of that some time ago. We were able to get uh, the arrangement of, of that piece and, uh, and we performed it once. Now, still on the topic of music real quick. So your instrument, is it your voice or do you also play other instruments? I play a bunch of different instruments. I play I, I play keyboard. I was a church organist for a while. Um, oh, cool. uh, I play uh, a lot of Renaissance instruments, um, recorders, yes. and uh, and I have I have a whole collection of, of uh, Renaissance instruments like, well, I have a 40 recorders or so, and I've got Ken's horns and cornemusen and crumb horns and... Mm. I have a hurdy-gurdy and I, yes. have a, a, I have a small harp that I play. And, and so, yeah, wow. I, I play a bunch of different instruments and I know how to pretty much make a scale on every instrument. Mostly mm -hmm. I haven't done it in a long, long time, but because I was a music teacher and I was teaching choir, but also instruments, instrumental music, I, you kind of have to be able to, to, to at least make a noise on the thing and, and a scale. Uh, and part of my training when I was getting my, my, my degree in music is I was taking not only conducting for choir directors, but also conduct, conducting for uh, orchestras. So I was doing kind of both sides of uh, both, both disciplines there. And last music related question, I think for me, at least, what is the role of a conductor? I, are you the metronome? Are you the vibe? You, you give people the vibe, you kind of introduce them. If they're connected with you, they're kind of catching the intensity that they should be playing at, or what do you view the role as? 
It's absolutely at least both of those things. It's also in rehearsal. It's also the instructor of how to approach the piece of music, uh, how to, you know, what, what feelings are you trying to communicate to the audience? But uh, the, the, the metronome part is keeping everybody together is kind of the, kind of the table stakes. That's the thing you need to make sure that you have the appropriate gesticulation that makes people stay together. But then also you need to express so the players can reflect that in their own way, um, the sort of, uh, uh, emotional response, uh, because that's really what, when you go to communicate with an audience, it's, the music has an emotional content and you really want to bring that across. Otherwise it's kind of an empty, uh, it's kind of an empty communication. You really want to communicate emotionally. Love that. This has been interesting for me because I am, I think maybe I could find C on a keyboard within eight keystrokes, but both of you are very passionate about music. So it's fun to see like uh, two people that, even if I don't fully understand the conversation, two people that are so into something, you, I think it makes a pretty great dialogue. Music's been a very, very important part of my life uh, since I was in school. Now, before we depart from music, can you make a couple song suggestions for us? Any recommendations? They don't have to be of a particular genre. Maybe just something that you've been listening to, something that, that comes to you. Well, I, I like a lot of different music. Uh, I... I uh, in contemporary stuff, I like a lot of Beck. I think he's got a, a great idea, a sound idea. But if you're talking more classical, uh, I usually go toward the kind of more obscure composers. Uh, there's a French composer I've been listening to uh, that I listen to a lot. His name is Magnard, uh, M-A-G-N-A-R-D. Uh, and he's from the turn of the 20th century. He's great, great French composer. Uh, also, uh, at, Pretty much anything by Vaughn Williams is going to be something that I really, really like. Uh, another composer of the mid-20th century. Very cool. I know that Jeff Hicks is smiling ear to ear as I know he composes some music as well. So, awesome. You know, you mentioned uh, after the acquisition or whatever, you got started at Microsoft, which is quite a unique journey. To go from being computer literate would be kind of the most you could say about your computer use to finding yourself at Microsoft. Um, were you initially on the PowerShell, working on PowerShell, or were you doing some other things and then eventually transitioned? Because you mentioned being the first program manager. Yeah. Um, so uh, Microsoft continued to release the services for Unix is what uh, the Interix product got folded into. And as a part of that, uh, I was working with the, the lead program, uh, the lead manager on a new project of having building a shell for Windows because one of the things that was really hard to do in Windows is is automate for scale. You know, command line, uh, command line uh, scripting on on Windows was something like VB script or uh, something less palatable, right? Um, and there really wasn't a very good shell if you, because the only thing you really would have had would be command.exe. There were a number of companies, uh, MKS is one of them. The, if you remember, the MKS toolkit was a set of Unix utilities that ran on Windows. And then there was the GNU utilities and, and, and SIGWIN and those tools. And those were very popular and being used. And if you're having a conversation about uh, why aren't you using Windows here, and the response is, well, I can't manage it because I can't script against it, it's a pretty tough, it's a 
it's a pretty tough thing to to deal with. You don't really have a, a good solution for it. So one of the things that they wanted to try to do is to build a good administrative tool that you could use to automate management of Windows. And I'd been working on another project, uh, that Interix project, uh, uh, where we had all those tools and really were uh, were pretty adept at it. And and I had been working with the, the hiring manager who was putting together this team, and we had talked on other on other about other projects. And he said, "Why don't you come do this?" And I said, "Yeah, I'd love to. That would be great." And so uh, that's when uh, the he started putting the team together. I was one of the, I was the program manager, the first program manager that they hired. And that's where they got Bruce Payette because I had worked with him uh, in the past and is great, uh, a great guy and really smart and, and knew the, knew this really well, knew this environment really well as too. And I had, because of my background in, in the different, in the different jobs that I've had, I'd written a, I had used the shell a whole lot and was very familiar with it and then, you know, written tens of thousands of lines of Perl. Remember this is the late nineties and uh, where Perl was actually really, really used. And I had, I wrote, I had written an NROF to HTML converter for one of the things that we did, we needed to do in, uh, in with, when I was a consultant for the MIPS group and, uh, and so I had written lots and lots of uh, lots of Perl, and so I was really familiar with these scripting languages, and said, "I think we understand. I understand these this problem space pretty well. I, I might have something to offer here." Now, I imagine that the early days of PowerShell were quite interesting. Um, what was the energy like? Did you did everyone know that they were working on something as impactful it was, as it would end up being, or was it just was there as much doubt, uh, or were there's any doubt w- where you guys were coming from, or was it like because I imagine it was probably took a lot of effort and there was a lot of battles that needed to be fought. And- well, all of that. Uh, the when we were working on the project, we knew it was really it had the potential to be something really spectacular, really useful to the platform. If you think about Windows scripting in 2001, 2002, you're really quite limited at the time. It was, it was really limited. And we knew that, that we could, if we could provide a solid tool for the guy who's managing not just Windows, but managing Linux tools, if we could provide something to that user that gave him a similar experience, then we could make it easier to manage the Windows platform. And if we could actually kind of, if we could find a way to one-up the experience uh, to for that user, we could actually uh, clobber a lot of, of exceptions that people have to the platform. Well, I can't do this with it. I can't do that with it. I can't, I can't manage a hundred of them at a time, um, which you can on a Unix system at the time, Linux system. Um, and, and that was, that was really clear. And that was really clearly in focus. We needed to solve that guy's problem because he's the, he's the one who needs it the most and, and can benefit it and will benefit and take advantage of the Windows platform because of it. 
so for sure, I mean, Jeffrey, uh, um, Jeffrey had a, had this great uh, this this great idea, and how can we take advantage of another new thing, which is the .NET platform? What can we do there to kind of make those things really? Is there something that can be done that, to make those two things really cohesive and and complete? And and he came up with this great idea, and and. When you dissect the problem on the window on the Linux platform, on the Unix platform, on the command line environment, it's really always about these discrete things. You get some piece of data, you manipulate the piece of data, and then you do something with the data, either format or use it or some sort of input to the next thing. So what if you could kind of break that down into, into logical operations? And if you're going to do logical operations, maybe you should be able to call things by name rather than worrying about column four to column six as the parent process ID of the process object, maybe you could just call it a name, like process ID. And if you look at .NET, that, that's all what it's all about. So how do you surface, how do you present those things? And so if you have that idea, then, then how far can you, how, how far can you take it? Where can it go? And, and so as we're, as we're working on this project, the thing that I knew that we needed, and we all knew that we needed, is some sort of syntax. How do you how do you use it? How, how do you build it? So that's where we came up with this this language that looks a lot like that looks a lot like Bash in, in many ways, um, uh, or at the time it looked like a lot like K shell, which is what I was the most familiar with, uh, Corn shell, uh, same sort of operators. And how do you how can you how can you bring that to the platform in a in a in a new way, using you know keeping these uh, ideas all in mind and really kind of and leveraging all of that to really make something kind of cool, and and we definitely as a team we were kind of we we had a single vision for sure about what we could do to improve the platform. Now, early days were the biggest challenges that you faced. Uh, of a technical nature or a more political one, like dealing with getting things done within Microsoft? Well, in any big organization, there's, that, that's always kind of a problem. You, you really, you know, in any sort of large organization, you really have to prove worth. So, I mean, one of the things the project did early on was, was build in, build for some targeted customers. Uh, Exchange started looking at PowerShell and the module system, and and how do we, how can we we, you how how can we solve Exchange's problem because they have some real management problems, and how can how what can we bring to that problem space to kind of make their life better, and so that that kind of uh, that kind of helped us make sure that we're building a project product for somebody that can really use it to get advantage of it. That is one I was always curious of, because I know Exchange was the first real product that had full adoption of PowerShell. Was that they just reached out and said, hey, we need anything that can help? Or is it more of uh, you reached out to them and say, I think we can do a lot of good for you here? I don't actually remember. Uh, I don't. I, and so I don't I don't know. I expect that there was an acknowledgement of, you know, in order to make something happen, we really do need to have a, a proof of uh, a proof of concept customer, right? You really have to be sure that you can solve their problems, otherwise it's going to be trouble. But I'm I'm not quite sure. I don't remember how that all was all, all that came about. I just remember that they were one of our first uh, uh, you know, big customers there. 
Yeah, it sounds like, you know, we've heard a lot that PowerShell helped out Exchange. And I think Jordan, it was a big deal for him and his career whenever PowerShell came out with Exchange or was help, you know, the commands for Exchange and whatnot. But also it sounds like Exchange helped out PowerShell. It gave the team an opportunity to show its worth and to validate it and to say, hey, Microsoft, let's keep uh, investing time and resources into this. Well, I think that's absolutely true. I mean, the, the project was new, it was untested. We needed to be sure that it was actually solving customers' problems. Uh, we could do that in small usability tests and things like that. But in order to really make, make some headway, you need to have real world usage of a thing. And that was, and, and definitely exchange was, was one of those uh, was one of those things that helped drive that. Well, otherwise, I th- we would have needed some large customer, some wide use customer. I think when I say large customer, I mean a lot of people that have a lot of different ideas about what they want to do. I think uh, I think you're going to need that kind of for any thing if you're going to get if you're going to get penetration into a marketplace. You really need some way to validate what you've built is actually useful in the main. Right. Um, and I know PowerShell, some people who are new to it think that it has a unique syntax, right? The verb dash noun. What was your thought process when designing the syntax and were there any specific goals you were hoping to achieve? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so one of the things that we, that one of the things that we were thinking about was how move forward 20 years and you have 20,000 commands and how do you how do you manage that? How do you under, how do you understand it first? Is is there a way that you can do some grouping, some consolidation, or you know, aggregation of activity that will help you find things? And if you start looking at that that as a kind of a uh, an abstract problem, you start to think, well, how can I group these 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 binaries into what they do, and how can I tell by looking at them what it does? And so if you start thinking about that, it's usually about an action and the thing that you're acting against, the noun. And so now you have a verb and a noun. And now the question is, well, is it should it be verb noun or should it be noun verb? And we actually had conversations about what makes more sense. And from my perspective, it was more about I fully expected there to be an unending amount of nouns. And an unending and an infinite infinite amount of resources that need to be managed, but you're going to have fewer actions against those resources than infinite. You're going to generally you're going to get something. You're going to set something. You might want to move something. You might want to. So the set of nouns becomes a smaller group of things to manage. Sorry, a set of verbs is going to be a smaller thing that you want to manage than it is the set of nouns, which is infinite and platform dependent. But uh, because, you know, if you don't have, if you're not a DNS server, you don't need to worry about anything that's DNS resource. If you're not a mail server, you don't need to worry about anything that's not a mail server, service sort of deal. But you're still going to have to do these actions against things that you do have. So it becomes it becomes a sensible, I think, uh, arrangement by you know, organizing as, as noun dash noun and verb, uh, verb and noun. Uh, and and Jeffrey was enamored of one of the mainframe OSs, I think, as well, where that was um, where that was uh, uh, more prevalent at the time, where there was a resource action sort of separation. 
I also think it was very smart to limit the verbs. I know anyone can use any verb, but you have get verb of these are the approved one, which I think was a, a brilliant move because it helps keep it more condensed, as you're saying, fewer sections on the verb unlimited nouns. Yeah, um, there's there's a couple of things for that. If you start looking at at multicultural, multilingual sorts of environments as well, because um, PowerShell really doesn't provide that sort of thing in its verbs. So that means that if you're speaking Finnish or uh, Norwegian or French, it's always the same thing. You can localize. It's possible to do that. But generally, these thing, these are the things, the, 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 these verbs are generally not localized. So it, it also then makes things more consistent when you move from one language element, one language environment to another. I what? hadn't even thought of that part. <laughs> That's a good idea. What are some of the most fulfilling moments or successes that you've had working on PowerShell? I know it's been quite the journey, but if there are any that kind of stick out to you. Well, the the, the one of the things that I'm really proud of is the the the, the language syntax. The the Bruce and I were were pretty. Uh, uh, we really worked together on it. I started with. Uh, I actually started. I, I created the first BNF based on the POSIX shell uh, grammar. So What's the a grammar, BNF? Uh, a Bacchus Nauer, um It's the expression of a grammar. Uh, a, oh, okay. Kind of like grammar. syntaxy stuff. Right? Yeah, it's the syntaxy thing. Um, it's it's essentially the expression of the of what the language looks like. So. Uh, it was clear to me that we wanted to cater to a, a Unix crowd, and the Unix crowd, by and large, used the Born shell as its command line environment. So that's why I started there, and then we I cut a whole bunch of stuff out. I mean, I really lobotomized it uh, and took its essence, and then we started to add things back into it. And Bruce and I would have conversations like say, well, what if we could do this? I would, I would suggest. And he said, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. And, and, but then there'd be a, some sort of nugget that you could pull out of there, like our, our, uh, some of our uh, operators. All of our operators are dash. So you have minus a Q, minus an E, minus replace, minus like, minus match. So they all have a, sh they all have a shape that makes it consistent. And that was kind of important to me. I cut some stuff out that was um, uh, uh, I cut some stuff out that was duplicated in Bash that wasn't really need needed in 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 uh, in this shell. Uh, one of the things that makes everybody really really angry uh, is uh, why didn't we use you know the redirection operator less greater than and less than as as redirection operators? Why are uh, why are sorry as arithmetic operators greater than less than that sort of thing? I said, well, this is we need to make sure that we uh, can redirect data. We can redirect to a file. That's kind of an important inter that's kind of an important thing that you do a lot. Can't always be asking for people to pipe to out file. You know, just greater than is a much tidier expression. And so there's a whole lot of uh, there's a whole lot of things that 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 fall into this uh, that this that this. Uh, uh, that you have to worry about when you're building the syntax. The other thing that people get mad at me about is why isn't backslash our escape operator? 
like it is in Unix? And the short answer is, is because it's a directory separator, right? right. Yeah. So it's, it's already Windows used. Case. Yeah. I came up with the back, the back quote because it sort of looks like a backslash. So there's some visual acuity stuff that's going on there. So it's still a back thing. It's just half a backslash rather than a full backslash rather than, you know, so there's all sorts of compromises you wind up having to do. And that's just one of them to satisfy the needs of the platform. I, I can't imagine going through and building all that goes into to PowerShell. And then like, you're never going to make everyone 100% happy. But with all of that, you find something like, why doesn't backslash R do that one thing that I want? It feels very particular. Oh, yeah. Well, no, I mean, a lot of people gave me a, a lot of grief about it. Uh, but, it, it, you know, you're pre there are some solutions that are precluded to you. There are some things you just can't do. Like, I'm not going to be able to change 100 million people's approach to typing a, a path and say, no, 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 sorry, backslash doesn't work anymore. You can't do that. That's that's probably not going to fly. Yeah. yeah, I bet that along the way you didn't even make the whole PowerShell team. Like there might have been some decisions that not everyone was fully on board with, but there was like maybe a majority, and you still had to kind of proceed with it. Oh, uh, yeah, for sure. Uh, I'm trying to think of uh, I'm trying to think of a, a case in point, but nothing comes to mind. But yeah, no, I'm I know that there were were those things where, uh, I mean, that, during what. Part of the process, there was a point where we were talking about um, attributes of the shell, what we wanted it to be. Uh, should, you know, we wanted it to be consistent. We wanted it to be reliable. We wanted it to be uh, testable. We wanted it to be, can you express, is it expre is expressive enough for you? Is And those things turn into a, a big matrix that you can then say, okay, what's more important than the other? So when we come time to kind of come, uh, to decide where we should invest our time because time's not infinite. Where what's more important than that? So what's more important? Is reliability more important, or is consistency more important? Is you know expressive ex expressibility more important, or you know that you know testability is that sort of thing? And you can actually then kind of build a tool that will help you make those decisions, but it doesn't make those decisions easier. You still have to say. You still have to make some hard choices, like when we sent version one out without remoting. That was a hard choice, but we had to do it. Otherwise, it would have been another 18 months before we shipped, right? So. And this whole time, you're a program manager, or is your role changing on the PowerShell team throughout the process? So uh, from, from uh, inception to release, I was a program manager the entire time. After we released, we were planning our next versions and we were starting to work on remoting. And I was, in fact, kind of driving from the program management perspective, the remoting aspects of it. And then I kind of I kind of got, you know, wanderlust. I wanted to kind of try something new. So that's when I left the team um, and went off to Microsoft Research, where I worked on a, a, a telephony project, uh, a small business I. Uh, IPPBX. And uh, I was still a program manager then, and then uh, I would, that, that project didn't survive, uh, so I then decided that I would go back and try to write more code, because I had done that in my earlier previous jobs before Microsoft, 
then I wanted to do it again, do it again. So I actually transferred to the office group and was working on the office uh, services team. Uh, and I worked as, and I was, and I got a, uh, I was a, in a role as a tester. So I was building, um, building test tools for the office online services and kind of working in the background infrastructure. And I built a whole bunch of uh, a PowerShell tools, big PowerShell module for managing managing and, and uh, the backend services a little bit. So at least you could get log files and you kind of inspect the services, see how it's doing. And I wrote some things for some of the other teams. Um, for the licensing team, I wrote them a bunch of tools as well. Uh, I don't know if they're still used. I doubt it, but you know it's been ten years. Um, but I I wrote a bunch of tools. PowerShell is a great tool building environment, so I wound up doing that. After after being in office, and I and I transitioned uh, back to the PowerShell team, uh, and then I, because uh, they consolidated the test engineering and the software development into a single software engineer, that's when I was. And, and then I just made that transition from the test role onto into an engineering role. And that was the second time that I came back. That was when I came back to the PowerShell team. I think that's six or seven years ago now. All right. And on that team, is that when you made Crescendo? Or I guess a, a part of Crescendo? I don't want to give full credit. It sounds like it's a whole team effort, but... No, Crescendo was an idea... Crescendo was an idea that I had had... I have had forever. Um, the thing that I wanted to, the thing I was trying to solve with Crescendo is, is there a way to write a bit of configuration and generate usable, reasonable code? And that was the sort of thing that I wanted to kind of reduce the pain for folks that have to deal with native executables, which is where the big problem in my big problem, it's not a big problem, but where the kind of the, where the opportunity was that, that you could kind of smooth the use of those native executables because they still have the same problems that we were trying to solve 20 years ago with PowerShell, which is, you know, each little utility is, is a, a kingdom to itself where it has its own way. It has its own notion of what the, 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 the parameters look like and how and and its own syntax uh, of of how you use that thing and the output that it creates. It's its own. Each one of those things it's still its own little kingdom. And and there's still the problem of having to deal with those those utilities in a consistent kind of cohesive way. And that that PowerShell presents to the world with commandlets and those sorts of things. And, I was been wondering: Is there a way for me to find some sort of common thing that you do all the time when you're trying to interact with one of these native executables? And can I extract that into not code? Is it possible to kind of define some sort of framework that you just simply list what the parameters are, hand it to some machine that you can turn the crank of, and it spits out? some usable code that makes it look more like PowerShell. And that's really where Crescendo, that was really where the kind of the, the Crescendo birth was, is that is that problem solvable? Because I'd been wrapping, I'd been wrapping native commands in PowerShell since like 2004, when we had a language that you could do it with, right? 
I want to run if config, but I don't want to remember what all the parameters are. IP config, sorry. I want to run IP config, but I don't remember what all the parameters are. So why don't I give them full names and then try to map them to the parameters that IP config wants? Uh, I also don't want to type slash parameter anymore. I just don't like it. So I'm going to figure out a way. Can I, can I, you know, when I'm wrapping this command, I'll turn it into minus whatever the word, you know, whatever the parameter is rather than slash parameter like there is on some Windows commands. So I, this has been in my, in my mind for like 10, 15 years. How do I do this? And then I finally started seeing if I could come up with a way to do it. And Crescendo was the way to do it. So can I tell you my first thought sure. when, I, when I learned about Crescendo was that seems like a great way to eliminate regex. Because you run one of those to, uh, commands in PowerShell, you get a massive string back and you got to dig through for what you want. But if Crescendo can make it so I get an object back and I can just specify what I want, that's, that's, uh, that's the greatest thing that's ever happened to me. Yeah, the 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 biggest the biggest problem that Crescendo, well, actually, any Crescendo has it, but it's a reflection of 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 the 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 root problem, which is these native utilities provide you historically provide you a bunch of text that has no real rhyme or reason or kind of uh, format or consistency, and you have to find your way with it, right? What do you how do you how do you deal with it? So Crescendo still has that problem. Modern tools are being built now that will limit JSON or XML or whatever that make that job a little bit easier, but Crescendo still has the problem, but at least you can codify it and store it away and never think about it again once you got what you want. Um, and there are tools that uh, you know you can use. There's a great tool on on called JC, which uh, essentially turns arbitrary text into JSON. It's not really arbitrary. It, there's a bunch of filters that people have written that turn if config output or IP, you know, if config output into JSON. Once you're in JSON, then PowerShell says, "Oh, great! I know how to deal with that." And so, so some of it makes it makes it you know, makes it easy. But historically, all these old utilities, it's also it's it's kind of problematic in dealing with them. At the same time, I was thinking. Well, all of these utilities have a really interesting way of presenting help that's really consistent. Is there another little tool that I can write to generate that help and read it? And, and then because it's consistent, oh, consistent text I can deal with. So in Crescendo, there's this experimental folder where I provide uh, a bunch of kind of in, I'd call them, uh, baby uh, help parsers. They're not, they're not fully featured and they don't fully work, but you can actually generate an object out of the help from all of these applications like Docker and, and, and KubeControl and, and even NetSH. Uh, you can actually kind of just run it and, and the tool recursively calls all the help that it can find and builds an object model that says, oh, this is what all these things can do and then I can use that to generate a crescendo configuration, that's kind of the, where I want to go with the thing. So, you can take a take a program that has consistent output of help, turn a crank, build and build a crescendo configuration, and then you can turn another crank and build a module that's based on all that. You know, Jordan, I just had a realization. 
we, we started off talking about his background in music and I'm thinking about the name of the crescendo module. <laughs> is that is it related to the musical term crescendo? Is that where it comes from or what's the idea behind the name of it? Yeah. Uh, 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 Jason, uh, it's, I'm really bad with names. I used all my naming mojo 15 years ago in Paris, the Paris show the first time. So I'm really horrible at naming things. And Jason came up with crescendo because what it really is doing is it's amplifying mm-hmm. your effort. And so crescendo is to get louder. And so that's amplifying the volume. And so crescendo is supposed to amplify your effort uh, by generating, by take doing a little bit of work and generating uh, something that's, that's, that's uh, much more useful. Now, what future advancements or improvements do you see coming for Crescendo? And how do you think it'll continue to evolve in the coming years? So one of the things I have, I hope that is possible, is some more generic help parser, something that can look at regularized help output and generate more of these configurations. And I'm looking for a way... The, a, cons- a consistent model in which I can do that. Uh, and by defining just a little bit of stuff as a prologue, then you say, okay, this little bit of stuff is what you need to understand the help that you get out of Docker. This little bit of stuff that you that I've defined is what you need to get the help out of uh, 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 NetSH. Uh, this little bit of configuration is what you need to get help out of you know, uh, Docker. Uh, coup control, uh, any of those things. Um, and I haven't found enough consistent yet, and a consistent engine to that. And I think there is, but I think there's a way to do it. I just haven't, I just haven't uh, found it yet. Uh, I just have to kind of keep looking. The other thing I'd love to see if I, if I get to it is um, a way to annotate arbitrary text and build up a library of those annotations and then be able to generate a text parser that allows you to parse arbitrary text into objects. Now, if you think about the output of all these native commands, it's always arbitrary text, especially the historical ones. It's arbitrary text. You don't know what shape it's going to be, but there is there is some consistency there. And the question is, is there a way to capture that in a way that 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 if you kind of combine some some uh, enough data, think about mach- machine learning on the thing. Is there enough way that you can kind of say, "Oh, I know what this is. I can give you this information out of this out of this bit of arbitrary text." I think it should be possible. I just I just haven't spent enough time on it. That's kind of where I'd like to go. Is that something that? AI would excel at because recognizing patterns in that way is something that I don't, I don't know for all humans, but I'm bad at. But AI seems to be able to do that a little bit. Uh, well, it, yeah, I think so. And and actually, you're not as I don't think you're as bad as you think you are because you're able to see a big wall of text and say, "Oh, that's an important word. Let me go see that." So your visual acuity, the, your your disambiguation of what's important on a big blob of text is actually really, really humans generally are really good at it. Uh, especially if there's slight, if if you're in motion and you see, and you if you see motion happening, you're really good. The human eye is built for it from a physiological perspective. You know, 
it's like the thing in Jurassic Park. Don't move. No. <laughs> Didn't work. Yeah, right. But the <laughs> the point is is that we're really, you know, humans are really, really good at it. And the machines are still kind of catching up to it in that way. And I'm hoping that that the uses of AI can actually improve there to make, you know, given enough get it given enough data that can it start to find that stuff. That's actually it it's always a, a I don't look at human mind as doing all those things, but I'm going to go to basketball with it because that's where my, my passion lies. Uh, Kevin Love, for the NBA long time, he's not the most athletic, not the tallest, but he was always in the exact right position where the ball was going. And just his the way his mind tracked or the ball in the air before he hit the rim was second to none, and it helped him be rebound leader for several years in a row. So it's I watched that, and I'm like, oh, wow, that's amazing. It can do all of that. But then when you get it as the whole of, oh, I'm just seeing some stuff, it, it feels underwhelming until you break it down. Exactly. And that's that's kind of why it took me, you know, kind of a, a couple of, going back to Crescendo, why it took me a little enough, doing it enough in a systematic way for me to start to see those those areas of consistency. That's how it really broke down is that I had to do enough of it that I had enough enough examples that I could pull out those parts of consistency and then said, okay, I can target it this way and that way I can build code. I can build a code generator to take that data and build something that's useful. Very cool. Um, I want to take this opportunity to plug a recent interview you did with Jason Helmick, where you did a deep dive in Crescendo, answered far more questions about it than you have here today. Um, there'll be a link to that in the show notes. Um, very awesome interview and definitely a great place to go if you want to learn a bit more. Yeah, it was something that we thought we really needed to do. Uh, I guess it's just, um, I guess he, he just released it. Uh, um but it was something that I wanted to be sure that that people could kind of get their hands around conceptually what's going on, because again, it's just the starting point. It's just you know this. How do you how do you just start with this stuff? You can then in, inspect all the code that gets generated, and you can modify it. It's just it's just code. It's just script. You can modify it to to do what you want it to do. It's just a. a it's just a scaffolding for all of that to occur. So, so that's that's one of the reasons I wanted to dig more deeply to make sure that people weren't scared off by it. Make sure that people understand that hey, it's still consistent. It's building something consistent inside. It just has to track more stuff than you might think it does. Right. And I don't think the sessions from Summit have been released yet. But you and Jason also did a talk at Summit that. I think it is a more of that was more of the direction of the future of crescendo or what you're working on. Yeah. yeah. Jason, Jason and I did have done a couple of things. Um, one is the, the summit talk where we're talking more in generalized terms, uh, but we also recently did a deep dive into the architecture of the artifacts of crescendo. So how the, how the, the modules are constructed, what's in the modules and, what he, what the parts of the moving parts are inside the module that gets built. And I thought he just said that that went live today. Maybe it, maybe it, I expect by this time, the time this goes, it'll be, it'll be powerful. Well, we'll make sure we uh, find that link and get up for everyone to go and give that a watch. No, Jordan, we need, you got the big guns. We got the big hard questions now, or you think, 
Jim so can handle them. The the common parameters. Are you ready for three questions that terrifies everyone? I, sure. I know I know you're a legend, but these ones are pretty scary. So let's, let's see if we can if we can stump you on these ones. Bit, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, what's one time something went wrong on the job? Uh, how did you handle it, and what did you learn from it? Well, it, kind of in the in the middle of the project, maybe clo- getting closer to to to, to, uh, to shipping. I was I was pretty direct. I was probably not as as uh, as gentle as I could have been in in a bunch of conversations. Uh, that that at the time. It was something I was super passionate about, but I wasn't necessarily uh, the most approachable guy. Uh, so I've tried to improve that over the last decade. It's a big one. It's uh, doesn't matter how good the ideas are if people want to adopt them if they're not going to work with you. Right. All right. I like it. It only gets more difficult from here, though. Are you ready for the second one? Okie dokie. With everything you know now, What's one tip you would love to give your younger self when you were first starting out in IT? Oh, that's a tricky one because I learned all of this stuff as I went. So, and and I don't regret ever um, my my educational background, my my musical training. So, uh, maybe tell myself, you know, you do have a little bit more time than you may think you do. I like that one a lot. That's wise right there. All right. Third and final question. This is the scariest of all of them. What are your three favorite PowerShell modules? Crescendo is acceptable. Yeah. uh, A crescendo is one of them for sure. I'm really, I'm, I am pretty proud about that. There's a, there's another module that is not public uh, that I, that I've been using internally for the, last 18 months or so that I built uh, that that allows me to interoperate with Azure DevOps builds and pull all sorts of different data about test results and build status and and I've been using it almost, it's almost been daily I've been using it uh, to kind of, uh, to kind of bring the PowerShell test infrastructure kind of under heel and making sure that we are, we really are uh, uh, making sure that our releases, that when we do a release, it's a big amount of work. And I've been desperately trying to reduce the amount of work that we do in that, uh, in, in that arena. It, it's expensive from a, from an effort perspective. And, and I'm trying to build tools. Well, I've built a, a tool that I'm really, really pleased with. Uh, that allows me to to manage that. When I don't know if you, you know, but when we release PowerShell, we we release on twenty five different platforms, and uh, we release uh, and we have two test runs on each platform. So that's fifty test runs, and we have more than three hundred thousand tests. It may actually be about five hundred thousand tests at this point. That we run uh, on on PowerShell, and so if you have to release and there is a failure in one of those tests, and because we've because it's you know like ARM sixty four Ubuntu, 
it's not one of those things we do in CI. It's one of those things that we do as part of our release test. If you have to go sort out what the problem is there and figure out what that problem is and get to the actual error message and all the rest of that, it's a pretty time-consuming task. And one of the this tool allows you to say, tell me what the error was. And it says, this is the error. Tell me where the error was generated. It's was generated here. Tell me what the error, you know, it tells you. So it's a, it's a tool that's really, really useful. Uh, Another tool I wrote was, uh, which is uh, still on, uh, these are all my tools, by the way. Uh, um, these are all my, my, my modules. Early on, I wrote a tool to create format blocks, the, the files, the format files that you use for formatting output in PowerShell. And so I built a tool called, I, I built this uh, format tools, I think is the module name. I have to look it up. Um, um, and it made that making, it made that really easy. Um, yeah, it's called format tools. It has a couple of things in it. It has a, a lorem ipsum generator. It has a, a way to actually, uh, there's an implementation of FMT in it, which is another Unix utility tool that takes a big bunch of text and turns it into a paragraph uh, with indentation or whatever. And, uh, and then I've got the, 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 the new table format uh, command that basically the way it works is you use whatever directives you want with format table and then you replace format table with new table format, and it spits out the XML for you. Wow. Which you can then use however you want to use it. Definitely. Saves some time. You, you know, we've uh, had a few guests that can use all of their own modules for that question, and it's always, I always love those ones just because it's it gives you a chance to really, you know, throw your chest is like, these are things I've created. I love that. Well, one of the things I did at the beginning of the project, even as a program manager, which was not generally a technical role, is I wrote kind of our first demos when we had we're still using Snapping. So I wrote dozens and dozens of of C sharp commandlets. In fact, I I wrote an article like fifteen or maybe seventeen years ago for. MSDN magazine? I can't remember. It was a magazine on building commandlets in PowerShell. Uh, um, so I've been writing, I've been writing code as a as a non-engineer for a long, long time. Uh, uh, it's one of the things I enjoy. It's one of those things that I that I learn a lot from every time I do it. Uh, it's another uh, it's another uh, opportunity for problem solving. Well, Jim, I'm not sure. I'm, you are obviously a fan of the arts with your music degree, and there's I am. multiple kinds of arts. You've got, you know, music, you got paint, but we have with us today a true master of an art that is not appreciated as it should be in this day and age, and that's the art of the shill. So we get the opportunity to sit back and watch a true master of his craft shill our podcast for future episodes. Take it away, Andrew. Yeah, Jim, sit back, relax, and okay. <laughs> witness history. <laughs> All right. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Um, give us a like, comment, subscribe. If you're listening on a podcast platform like Apple or Spotify, leave us a review. Help people find us. Spread the joy of PowerShell. Help make people's lives easier. You can follow us on Twitter, at PowerShellPod. 
You can send us an email with feedback, quish, uh, questions, Mac suggestions. You know your boy needs some help. PowerShell at PDQ.com. I'm at Andrew Plotek. He is at DevOps Jordan. Thank you so much, Jim Truer, for joining us. It was a pleasure. Thanks to everyone for listening. I hope this was an informative episode for you. I know that for me, this is uh, very exciting, and I'm very proud of this one. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. Uh, if anyone wanted to, are you on any sort of social media platforms, or is that just kind of... I have Twitter, and I'm on Facebook, but I don't use them very much. Okay. <laughs> that works for me. Well, I, I'm, I'm. thank you for taking the time to talk to us. Uh, hopefully, a lot of people listen to this one because just the the insight of someone who was there from the beginning is fascinating to me i really appreciate it thanks for joining the powershell podcast with your hosts jordan hammond and andrew plaw i dig it the powershell podcast is a production of pdq.com making device management simple secure and pretty damn quick